Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is proudly brought to you by Care Of, the subscription service that makes it easy to get vitamins, protein powders, and more personalized just for you and delivered straight to your door. I'll be back after our first story to tell you a little bit more about tonight's sponsor. Until then, settle in, get cozy, and prepare to be unsettled. The show is about to begin. <laughs> it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Listener, you're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about marital madness, demonic discoveries, and unsettling accusations. I'm Steve Taylor. Tonight, I'll be your host as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice actors Jason Hill, Josh Irish, Irish, and Joe Walls. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Our first tale tonight is brought to us courtesy of author C.J. Henderson and is voiced by Jason Hill. 
In the story, our protagonist goes to extraordinary lengths to maintain his marriage in the face of the reddest of flags. Without further ado, I present to you, The Artist. There's this painting my wife loves called Death and Life by Klimt. I don't know what she finds so fascinating about it. I made all the right noises when she showed me her beloved framed print when we were first dating, ooing and aahing and making up some bullshit about warm and cold color schemes and the specific choice of angles and line. She was an artist herself. Our first few dates involved long walks through museums, starting at Picasso's blue period and ending in heavy petting and blue balls. I took an art history course as an elective when I was finishing up my doctorate. I remembered enough of the lingo to charm my fantastically gorgeous future wife and lure her back to my stupidly filthy apartment. We're talking me as the foul bachelor frog, sitting on a lily pad made of empty takeout containers, surrounded by a pond of enough unwashed clothes to keep a laundromat in business for a cool six months. I remember scrambling to find two of any sort of cup-like containers for the bottle of wine we had brought back while she was in the bathroom. I rinsed out a couple of coffee mugs and ran into the bedroom to try to clean up the condom wrappers that had been sitting on my bedside table since 2003. On the bed, neatly laid out against the rest of the chaos, were my wife's dress, bra, and panties. She came out of the bathroom completely nude aside from a pair of high heels, took the wine from me and took a swig straight from the bottle. I fell totally, completely, and irrevocably in love. I have no head for artistic things. I work in finance. I get creative with numbers, not paint. But I fucking love her stuff. She's made a name for herself over the past few years. Critics call her the American Damien Hirst. One of her first exhibits was composed of a dozen oil paintings of rotting pastries surrounding an actual cake filled with thousands of dead ladybugs being fed to a mummified tarantula dressed up as, well, Little Miss Muffet. I have no idea what it meant, but it was sick, successful and catered by Balthazar, so I ate about 20 croissants. They didn't have any bugs in them. I checked. She was amazing. She had the body of a Laker girl and the face of a Medigliani model, and still does. She's charming, charismatic, deep. The kind of person people flock to, want to be around constantly. She fucked like she had something to prove and she had a twisted sense of humor. As soon as I hooked a job with enough figures to keep a girl like her satisfied the way she should be, I proposed, bought her a historical brownstone in the city with a garden full of roses and hardwood mahogany floors, and for the first few years, she seemed happy. We were the kind of couple you see in New York Magazine and scoff at because they're just too damned lucky. But we had a rough spot like all married couples do. She was still superficially the same woman I fell in love with. Looked amazing. People always asked me when she was going to host the next dinner party. She still had an amazing eye for art. I knew 
though. I knew that she was miserable. I could see it. The misery. In the corners of her eyes and the curve of her mouth. It happened gradually. First it was the shower curtain. She bought three or four from a small boutique downtown, brought them home so we could choose one out together. We decided on one. Pale blue, made of the material that was impractical and way too expensive for a drapery in a bathroom. Though we had the money and it made her happy, so why the hell not? A few days later, I was shaving and realized that she still hadn't put the curtain up. It wasn't until about a month after that I caught a glimpse of it hanging up in her studio, cut to shreds and died till it was almost unrecognizable. I chose to ignore it because I had learned it's usually not the best course of action to call an artist out on their creative license, unless you want to start an all-out war with no discernible end. A year after that, though, I had no choice. She had been so on edge it was like she was standing on a razor. She usually had a show every three, four months or so, and if anything she had too many ideas. The galleries always asked her to trim down her collections. When the year passed without so much as a single finished painting, I started to worry, both about her well-being and our bank account. We were extravagant spenders, and each of her shows would bring in a cool twenty grand that paid for a few months of European beaches and ski trips in Aspen. The final straw, though, is when she burned down the roses. It turned out she had finished dozens of projects over the year. She had hated all of it and had either destroyed or painted over everything. While I was at the office, she flew off the handle, doused about sixteen canvases in lighter fluid, and set the yard on fire. When I got the call from the fire department, I rushed home to find her sitting in the back of the ambulance, covered in ashes, blonde hair singed at the ends. She was smoking a cigarette. I looked over the burnt flowers, the skeletons of her paintings, the ruined limbs of broken sculptures, and asked her what had happened and why. She took a drag of the cigarette and said, It was mine to burn. She took big fancy pictures of the inferno. A family of bunnies suffocated in the smoke. She had them stuffed and mounted in size order on a baking soda volcano like the kind you see in middle school science fairs. She gathered up a few of the charred bits and pieces, wired it together and made some warped, pained-looking kind of phoenix thing, weighing in at 400 pounds and easily over 8 feet high. She called the whole thing From the Ashes, and the reviews in the Times called it huh, Incendiary, her first foray into becoming a true artist. Someone bought the phoenix. I pity the person who wakes up every day and looks at that strange thing, suspended in constant agony. We were both drunk at a random, expensive, vaguely Dante's Inferno-themed bar in San Francisco when I finally got a chance to ask her what was bothering her. We had been making dark jokes all night about the beautiful irony of her show and our current locale. At first, she vehemently denied anything was wrong, angrily pointing out that we had made four times as much off her last show as anything before it, that it had more than covered the damages that it had paid for the vacation we were on. I stayed silent. She tossed her newly cropped hair and looked like she was going to open up for a second. 
I saw her soft blue eyes fill with tears. Then she took a shot of whiskey from a glass that had a bull's hand and smirked. Well, for starters, she slurred, nonchalantly dangling the glass from the bull's nose ring. I'm fairly certain I'm pregnant. She let the glass drop from her finger and it shattered on the floor as she slid out of her seat and stumbled to the exit. I sat there for a while and drank more, feeling furious, confused, and miserable. I remembered her face when she showed me that Klimt painting. I remembered how she wore glasses back then, how she pushed them up to the bridge of her nose when she smiled as I talked about the fucking warm and the fucking cold colors and the fucking angles and fucking lines. We converted her studio into a nursery. Rather, I did, while she stayed in San Francisco and did God knows what with her artist friends. I had a landscaper come in and replant the roses. I worked a lot of overtime, dragged myself to sleep while I skimmed through parenting books. She came back when she was almost full term. I came home from work one night to find sonogram pictures pasted all over the fridge of two healthy-looking twins, big baby girls. I walked into our bedroom and saw her dead asleep on top of the covers, belly swollen, smelling faintly like pot and paint thinner. She had a rainbow of dried paint on her fingertips. I loosened my tie and walked to the nursery. She had been busy. The canary yellow I had chosen was covered in a layer of translucent blue. Then she had covered one of the walls in Klimt-esque patterns and curly cues. The creamy plush carpet was covered in paint splatters. She had worked furiously to finish. She had cut a swath from one of the new rose bushes and made a giant bouquet, shoving them so tightly in the vase that some had escaped and made their way from their perch on the changing table to the floor. She had scattered them in the bassinet, on the windowsill. It was chaotic and utterly breathtaking. The next few years were peaceful, for the most part. We bonded over raising the girls. Despite my wife's less than careful prenatal preparation, they were both wickedly smart and beautiful. They both looked like her, with long curly blonde ringlets and blue eyes. Sometimes when I put them to bed, I wondered if any of my DNA was in them at all. They were like miniature versions of her. My wife agreed to see a psychiatrist for a little bit. She took some medication for a while, Xanax, some mood stabilizers. Eventually, she and her doctor decided her crisis had been hormonal and temporary. We started having dinner parties again, soothed the gossip that had infected our social circles. She stopped painting and took up teaching at a university. She seemed content again, even happier than she was before. Every once in a while, I would catch a look in her eyes like repressed artillery fire, like she was ready to explode at any second. But it never lasted for longer than a few seconds before they went back to the soft cornflower blue I knew so well. And who doesn't get a little agitated every once in a while? I rose through the ranks at work. I love the feeling of power that came with promotions. I love my girls. And by God, I loved her. My crazy, disgusting, beautiful, hateful, and loving, extraordinary wife. 
Then came today. Today, I came home from work early. Today, my wife took the day off to be a chaperone on a class trip to the Met. They were after her for months because of her expertise in the art world. They wanted the children to experience the culture in the most sophisticated way possible. I thought it was ridiculous. They were one to three years old in a private daycare. They saw more beauty in Cheerios than in Monet's water lilies. But they wore my wife down, and she was given a gaggle of toddlers and wide-eyed teachers to tour around the museum. I came home from lunch because I had forgotten my iPad that had notes on it for a presentation I was giving that night. I walked through the rose garden and noticed a tiny piece of sculpture left over from the ashes exhibit from so long ago. It was half of a tiny bird. It had the kind of exquisite detail that my wife used to be so famous for. I was pretty sure it was an actual bird that she had cast in clay. I thought I could see a small piece of feather in one of the cracks. I idly wondered why I hadn't noticed it before. I went inside and poured myself a glass of orange juice. The fridge had pictures that my daughters drew. Happy, crooked stick figures that looked nothing like the beautiful horrors their mother used to churn out. I was happy about that. I hoped they would fall in love with numbers like I did. It was absolutely silent, and I sipped the sweet citrus and enjoyed the nothingness. Then, I thought I caught a vague sense of fresh paint in the air. Curious, I walked into the living room, and there was my wife, sitting on the leather couch with a bottle of wine, looking like an angel of death. She was covered head to toe in blue-gray body paint with a special concentration underneath her eyes. She was wearing a revealing patchwork blue dress, covered in crosses of various shapes and sizes. Not a dress, I realized, but the shredded shower curtain from so many years ago. I could see most of her still perfect breasts, the curve of her waist. The bottle of wine was elongated and painted a strange shade of orange. The smell of the paint was stronger in here, an overwhelming smell of lighter fluid, and something else I couldn't place. She had shaven her head. I stared at her for a while. Minutes? An hour, maybe? Eventually, she took a swig of wine from the bottle, swirling it around in her mouth. I noticed paint, deep blues and even deeper reds around her fingers. I sat down in the armchair across from her, unable to think of what exactly I wanted to ask her. Maybe because I knew. Maybe because I didn't want to know. I noticed a camera on the table between us. I went to pick it up and she rested her gray hand on mine before I could, softly, gently, with all the familiarity of years of marriage. She opened her mouth to speak, soft pink lips made pallid by the paint. They were mine. And I've been sitting here, knowing what's behind the door to my daughter's room with the climped wall we never repainted, knowing why my phone keeps ringing with calls from the school from the NYPD, 
knowing why I couldn't find my sleeping pills last night. Knowing what that smell is. Seeing in my peripheral the red pooling and staining the carpet from underneath the door, the pile of clothes neatly folded next to my wife on the couch. I can picture that thick wire she used to fit all of her subjects where she wanted them. What a perfect, detailed recreation it must be. Because she's so perfect. I see the phoenix in my mind's eye. I hope when she flicks that cigarette she's about to light. That we both fucking burn. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Artist by author C.J. Henderson as performed by Jason Hill. Up next, we've got another terrifying tale for you. This one from author Alice Thompson about the sinister side of science. But first, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about my own personal experience with tonight's sponsor, Care Of. They're an innovative vitamin and supplement delivery company that's making it easier than ever to get the nutrition you need and a special offer they've got for those of you listening in tonight. At the top of the show, I mentioned briefly what Care Of is all about. Their entire business model is centered on making it easy for everyone to get personalized orders of vitamins and more delivered right to your door, conveniently packaged to make remembering to take your supplements a snap. Now, I signed up with Care Of this past week myself, just got my first order in the mail, and I've got to tell you, the process could not have been easier, and everything arrived just in time to spring into a healthy routine starting the week after what seemed like a never-ending winter. And with the cold season coming to a close, I figured it was time to get back into a daily routine that got me back to my best. Care Of is part of that routine. And with their individually packaged, personalized packages of vitamins, it's simpler than ever to give myself the boost I need. And whether you're looking for energy, trying to get a better night's rest, or just looking to reduce your stress, Care Of's got you covered. Getting your first order set up is so simple. Care Of's fun online quiz asks you about your diet, your health goals, and lifestyle choices. And once you get started, it only takes five minutes to find out your personal scientifically backed recommendation for vitamins, protein powders, and more. The online quiz is now new and improved to learn if you are getting enough protein, fiber, and good fats to determine if you could benefit from Care Of's new natural protein powders. 
Now, I'll tell you, personally, when I went, this survey is not one of those that you have to spend a lot of time on, but it asks intuitive questions. It asked me if I was worried or concerned about my heart health, my digestive health, my stress, and I answered these questions accordingly. As you sit through this and you answer these questions, you begin to really refine your own thoughts about what's going on with your own body. Maybe uh, you've read somewhere something you're interested in, and, or maybe you just realize you're not coping with your stresses the way you should. Well, this survey, as intuitive as it is, gets you right to exactly what you need and what will be delivered directly to your front door. The day that my order was placed, three days later, the order is sitting right there in my living room, just waiting for me to start. And as of this podcast, I'm on day one, and you've joined me on this journey to feeling better with help from Care Of. One thing that's important to me at Care Of, they believe that taking care of your health ought to be easy and convenient. The truth is, it can really be challenging to know which vitamins or supplements you should be taking. All the information we could ever need is at our fingertips online these days. But with the world seemingly growing smaller every day, and with this information out there too, it's tough to know where to turn to get quality researched recommendations or to know what's safe to take and what isn't. Now, we may specialize in scary stories here at Chilling Tales, but the last thing we want to hear about is that our listeners are having a horrific time trying to stay healthy. With Care Of, it's easy to find out specifically what you need to be your healthiest. And the individualized personal packs make it simple to ensure you don't take more than you need either. They've even got your name on them, so if more than one person in your household has signed up, there's no confusion. And once you've signed up with Care Of, your subscription box shows up at your door each and every month so you can get on with your busy, on-the-go life and stop worrying about refilling pill boxes or whether you're going to have to run to the store close to closing time because you ran out of something. Everyone ought to experience the Care Of difference, and I am glad I did. In addition to a wide variety of vitamins, the company offers delicious, nutrient-packed quick-stick powders that can be added to your monthly delivery for an extra easy boost whenever you need it. And they offer protein powders, too, now available in individual packets for those on the go, as well as tubs, all personalized to your fitness goals and dietary preferences. And not only do the folks at Care Of have everything you could possibly need, with them, you can be sure you're getting vitamins and protein from the best sources, backed by honest guidance and transparency. Their new protein powders, for example, have clean labels and are made with organic ingredients like cocoa and Himalayan pink sea salt or whey from free-range grass-fed cows from Ireland. If you happen to be on a vegan or vegetarian diet, you can simply let them know and they'll make sure you receive supplements that are animal-free. If, like many, you've had trouble getting into a vitamin routine or find it challenging to stick with it once you get started or just aren't sure if you're taking the right supplements or in the right amounts, I encourage you to give Care Of a try. They've done a lot of the legwork, so you don't have to. And everything is backed up by research and science that you can confirm yourself. Who knows, you might learn something from the survey you didn't think of before. And I'm confident you'll be thrilled with the results and your first order. And today, Care Of is making it easier than ever for listeners of this show to become their best and get started improving their health with a special offer just for you. For 30% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter CTDN30. Again, that's TakeCareOf, all one word, dot com with the promo code CTDN30 to get 30% off your first order with this amazing company and to let them know that Steve Taylor and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. Simple as that. Once you give them a try, send us an email and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear about how the sponsors supporting this show are helping you. Now 
now that we've done what we can to reduce your stress and get you feeling your best with the help of Care Of, now's a good time to remind you that exercise is another great way to shed those extra pounds and feel that sweet, sweet rush of endorphins. And what better way to get a workout than to run for your life? <laughs> Our second story tonight is performed by Josh Irish and goes to show how little we know about our world and why perhaps it's better that it stay that way. From author Alice Thompson, I present to you my grandfather's final invention. My grandfather was an inventor. All his life he had been tinkering with something, either taking something that existed and changing it, making it into something brand new, or at the very least different, or inventing something entirely from spare parts. And while nothing he invented was ever earth-shaking, it was one of my greatest delights, ever since I was a little kid, to see what he'd made. Childhood visits to his home would always begin or end with me sitting on the couch, a look of absolute fascination on my tiny face as he showed off whatever gadget he had put together in his workshop this time around. It was like having my own personal Santa who worked all year round to fill my eight-year-old mind with wonder and glee. My older sister was likewise excited, no matter how much she tried to hide the excitement it filled her, probably in an effort to appear cooler or more mature than myself. And while because of real life getting in the way, the visits became fewer and fewer, the older we got. We would always make time to see him at least a few times a year, and every time he would have something new to show us. He really was a genius. I should add, this isn't meant to imply something horrible happened to him. I'm sure some days he wished it had. That it had been him who had wound up in that hospital instead of my sister, but... No. He went in his sleep, and I hope that his passing was a peaceful one. Even all these years later, I can't bring myself to be angry about what happened. I can't bring myself to hate him. He had no idea what would happen, no clue how things would pan out. He knew something was wrong, yes, but he wasn't some doddering old fool. He knew the first time he looked through them that something was wrong, but he thought it was something only a little odd. Something unsettling and curious, perhaps, but not anything dangerous. Not anything that would harm anyone. I think, deep down, he just wanted to know that he wasn't crazy. He wanted to be sure that he wasn't seeing things. And who can blame him? Myself, my girlfriend Jessica, and my sister Joan. We were both used to our grandfather being bursting with energy to show us whatever he'd put together. So, his oddly subdued mood when he came to the door to greet us came a bit of a surprise. I was a little disappointed, in fact. I'd been hoping Jessica would get to share in the experience of having a new invention demonstrated before our eyes. We'd only started dating that year, so it'd be the first chance she got to see the kinds of things I'd been telling her about. The day passed pleasantly enough as we chatted, enjoyed food, and watched the television together. I think it was Joan who asked him, finally, if he had anything special to show us today. We knew that he had been working on something, as while this was the first time we'd seen him in person in a while, we'd both spoke to him on the phone in the preceding months, and he'd eagerly explained to us that he was working on something he thought would be quite extraordinary. 
I still couldn't tell you how he made them. I wouldn't even if I could. I tell you what his original idea for those oddly colored circles of glass had been. Before that fateful day, he'd looked through them and seen what he'd seen. He never shared details of his work with us beforehand, as he wanted it to be a surprise, and afterwards I think he was terrified of the thought of anyone replicating what he'd made. All I know is that when Joan pressed him to reveal his latest invention, he looked nervous in a way I'd never seen him before. Looked as if he was deeply troubled by something. He hesitated before speaking, as if not sure he would say anything at all before explaining to us that the nature of what he had been working on had changed after an unusual event, and that he wasn't sure if it would be a good idea to show us the end result. Now, we may have grown since the days when we would perch on his knee, but whether someone is two years old or in their twenties, the surest way to make them want something more is to tell them they can't have it. So, his reluctance, which at the time I'm sure we both thought was feigned, and heightened the suspense before the unveiling, just made us both want to see his invention more than ever. With a little persuading, he agreed, and left to fetch it. He came back a few moments later with what appeared to be a pair of glasses, with one big difference. The lenses were like no glasses I had ever seen before. I can't even describe the color of it without resorting to words like reddish or greeny, as they didn't seem to be exactly any color that we would have names for. In fact, they didn't seem to be exactly any one color at all. As if you tilted them one way and they would look different to you if you tilted them another. I know full well that probably sounds more like magic than something a well-meaning old man could put together in his humble little workshop, but that's what they were. Joan asked what they did, and her grandfather paused for a few moments, as if not quite certain how to answer. In the end, he told us that we really had to put them on for ourselves, as he was certain neither of us would believe him if he told us. Joan wanted to put them on first, but as she lifted them off the table, he reached out and grabbed her hand. He cautioned her that it might be startling at first, but that she wasn't in any danger and that if she got frightened, she could just take them off. He warned her that what she was about to see may not make any more sense to her than it did to him, but that we were all safe. I could tell Joan was a little scared. She always was lousy at hiding how she felt from people, and even I was feeling a bit unsettled by our grandpa being so uncharacteristically ominous about the whole thing. Joan slipped the glasses on, and we waited. She gasped, and for the next few moments she looked puzzled more than anything. Her lips moved wordlessly, and I thought I caught a... No, that's not right. Under her breath, as she seemed to look around at something none of us could see. And then she began screaming. I don't know if you've ever heard someone scream in horror in real life. I can promise you this, it's not like in the movies. The movies don't convey the awful sound of someone you love screaming their lungs out, making a noise more like an animal than a human being. It can't make you feel the things I felt in that moment, watching Joan yank the glasses from her head and hurl them across the room. And nothing could have prepared us for the sight of Joan beginning to claw her own eyes, screaming louder than anyone should be able to scream as she did. 
It took all three of us to restrain her at first. When we had her pinned down so she couldn't hurt herself anymore, Jessica and my granddad held her that way while I called for an ambulance. I had to watch as she was strapped down and wheeled into the back of one, thrashing and hissing and shrieking like some mad animal, like something utterly consumed by fear with no way out. I explained what happened, knowing full well how it made me sound. Jessica and I both explained the series of events that led to the skeptical, if not totally disbelieving hospital staff, and then to the specialist called in when nothing sort of being tranquilized proved effective at stopping my sister from trying to hurt herself. The glasses had supposedly gone missing, which made proving what had happened difficult, and it wasn't until almost a year later, long after my sister had been committed, that my grandfather finally confessed to me what he destroyed them. I don't know if anything could have helped. Could have given the doctor some way to m make things right. I doubt it somehow, and I can't truly blame him for doing what he did. Given that it was an act born out of guilt and honest desire to make sure this didn't happen again. When he told me that he destroyed them, I asked what those glasses had done to her. He hadn't wanted to talk about it, and for the first time in my life, I raised my voice to him, angrily demanding to know. After all this time, just what had driven my sister to this state? What had affected her so deeply, so profoundly, that she was now no longer even recognizable as the person I'd grown up with? He took me to his workshop and began digging around through the bits and pieces that littered the place. The half-finished and now long-discarded invention still awaiting completion. He produced two pieces of glass, rather like the ones that had been fitted onto those glasses. He told me that there wasn't any way to describe it without sounding insane. That if I had to know, then I had to see. But he begged me not to do this. That knowing wouldn't make things any better. He was right. I held the glasses up to my eyes, and in an instant, everything changed. Instead of just my grandfather stood before me, now there were dozens more in the room with us. But they weren't people. They were pale and emasicated, hunched over and dressed in dark clothing, with black lips and wide, lidless eyes that seemed to almost bulge from their skulls in a manner both comical and horrifying. Their mouths were full of hundreds of thin teeth, like needles. Their fingers were grotesquely long and ended in dark and fishlessly pointed nails that scraped along the floor as they walked. And all of them were talking, or rather, their lips were moving soundlessly. Each and every one of them was trying to say something that couldn't be heard. Dozens upon dozens of voices trying to convey something. I dropped the glasses to the ground in shock, and my grandpa brought his foot down on them hard, grinding them to powder underneath his foot, muttering that he should have done this in the first place. He put an arm on my shoulder, asking if I was alright. I was far from alright, and he had been correct. What I had seen made things worse, not better. It took me a while to work it out, of course. Why this had such a horrifying effect on my sister, and yet I had survived the experience. Frightened but not sporting the mental scars it had given her, 
The glasses only see the creatures. I couldn't hear what they were trying to say to me. Couldn't understand the message they were trying to impart. But my sister was deaf. She could read their lips. I hope you enjoyed My Grandfather's Final Invention by Alice Thompson, as performed by Josh Irish. Up next, we transition from the lab to the interrogation room and find out what happens when a man is accused of the most heinous of crimes against his very own son and hasn't got an alibi from author Christopher Mallory, as brought to life by voice actor Joe Walls. I present to you Ruined Sheets. The third time the police arrested me for child abuse, I tried to run from the crime scene, my son's bedroom, still clenching my boy's blood-soaked sheets. Officer Wallace slapped on the cuffs and threw me into the back of his car as the paramedics were loading my emotional seven-year-old into an ambulance. Strapped to the gurney, face awash in gore, eyes wide, he reached out with both hands, breaking the paramedic's restraints. Daddy! Daddy! I slammed my shoulder into the cruiser's door and screamed. It was no use. Seconds later, the ambulance pulled away in one direction, then the cruiser went in another while I continued thrashing around in the back, cursing the witness. Wallace stared into the rear view, paying more attention to me than to the foggy road ahead of him. After a while, I calmed down and closed my eyes. I knew what kind of treatment awaited me. There was nothing I could do but play the game. At the station, Wallace and his partner showed me photos of my boy's bedroom. The brand new white sheets I had just purchased for him were stained bright red. Pools of crimson spread across the floor where the blood had flowed over the edge of his mattress. The walls looked as if they had cried red tears. Stalactites of slaughter hung in congealed masses from the ceiling. Complete carnage. No one should have survived. And yet... My boy did. I rolled my eyes then slammed my chained fists on the table. It's not the first time. You aren't showing me anything I haven't seen before. Hatred burned in Wallace's eyes, the kind reserved for subhuman waste or disease-spreading rats. You hurt him in the past? Or are you saying you've hurt other children? He jumped up from his chair, grabbed my t-shirt, and stood within an inch of my face, the corners of his eyes spasmed as he clenched his jaw, baring his teeth. Give me a reason, you sick freak. Give me a reason. I knew then what kind of man I was dealing with and laughed, despite myself. A reason? Fine, how's this? Those pictures are mild in comparison to last time. And the time before that. And the time before Wallace's partner whispered, what in God's name did you do to that poor child? Without turning away from Wallace, I said, Not another word until you let me see my boy. Wallace threw me back down into the chair. Get this piece of shit out of my sight! I sat up straight, smoothed my blood-splattered t-shirt, and did my best to keep a smug grin on my face. Being the monster they wanted wasn't easy, but I knew from experience he would likely hurt me if I tried to play the concerned innocent father card. 
The whole time I'd been thinking about my boy swarmed by social workers and doctors. Luckily, he knew better than to talk. Daddy had taught him well. After a sleepless night on a hard cot stinking of piss, Wallace's partner called my name and let me out of the holding cell. The paper he handed me had been stamped in red with the words, Charges Dropped. I collected my belongings, made a few quick phone calls, then stood outside waiting for a taxi in the thick morning fog. It had rained again, and the light mist blowing in the wind cooled my face. Freedom felt great. I couldn't wait to find my boy. Wallace came running out of the police station. I knew he wanted to rough me up, or worse. For fifteen minutes, he stared daggers into the side of my head. Finally, he said... The captain let you free, and he wouldn't tell me why. I nodded. Wallace took a step back. I don't know what the fuck is going on, but this isn't over. I nodded again, knowing exactly what he thought of me, knowing how confused and angry he would be without answers. Out of the corner of my eye, I watched him seething and wondered if the next time he put his hand on his service weapon, he was going to shoot me in the back of the head. The taxi pulled up. I let out a relieved sigh and climbed inside. Hospital, quick. The driver went to pull away. Well, no, wait, I said, and the car came to a stop. I wound down the window. Follow me if you want to see something. Wallace nodded, his face giving nothing away. I took the blank expression to mean he still wanted to kill me. I nodded back, smiled, then tapped the door, signaling the driver to go. At the hospital roundabout, my boy waited outside in a wheelchair, smiling. Two women in scrubs stood behind him, pale and visibly frightened. The second I exited the taxi, my boy, looking good as new, ran and jumped into my arms. The two women approached me almost cautiously, while Wallace edged along to the side, mouth hanging open. I hugged my boy as if I hadn't seen him in years. What'd you tell them? Nothing, Daddy. Are we going to have to move again? I nodded. It isn't your fault. The old lady next door heard your screams before I could mask them. Wallace shook his head. He was... I saw... The how? One of the boy's doctors said, Once we cleared away all the blood, the other finished. We couldn't find a mark. Not a single cut, scratch, or bruise. Far as we can tell, he's a perfectly healthy little boy. My boy tugged at my sleeve. Can we go, Daddy? Yeah. I climbed into the taxi, still holding him tight. Wait. Wallace leaned in the window. Is this some sick joke? I saw what you did to that child. I saw the room. I closed my eyes. As you can see, he's perfectly fine. That doesn't make any sense. I never said it would. You told me you've done worse, made it clear you've hurt other kids. I have that on tape. Listen to your tape again. I said I've seen it happen before. Wallace narrowed his eyes. Think you're smart? Throwing animal blood over a kid, mentally torturing him? That's enough to put you away. He smiled, leaned closer, and whispered, Even if it isn't, I won't let this go. I'll stop you myself. I hugged my boy tighter, remembered how sour events can turn when some would-be hero has it out for you based on preconceived notions and tinfoil hat theories about a child's well-being. 
my boy lost his mother to a vigilante, murdered to protect him from harm that she never inflicted. Since then, I've learned to adapt. My act at the supposed crime scene, my attitude at the station, the invitation for Wallace to follow, even what I would say to him next, calculated damage control. All of it to protect my boy. You want me dead, but you aren't the first person that's threatened me and my boy. I would tell you to leave it to the caseworkers, but, officer, have you taken a look around? Wallace turned toward the doctors. Where are they? Where's that man from social services? One of the doctors swallowed hard. Gone. Said there was nothing he could do. I bit my thumbnail, wondering how many more times I would need to deal with a situation like this. Tell him what you found, please, doctor. The doctors looked at each other, then at Wallace. We thought it had to be animal blood, one of them said. It wasn't, the other added. The blood is definitely human. It's my boy's blood, I said, and they know it. Both doctors nodded. Yes, we triple-checked, one of them said. The blood is a match for the child. The other stepped forward. Sir, we would like to keep him for some further tests. I sighed. No tests. Never again. Thank you both for cleaning up my boy. They nodded, then turned and walked back into the hospital, muttering something about devils and miracles. Wallace seemed to deflate. He knelt and stared at my boy. The rain had picked up again, and it made it look as if he were crying. He opened his mouth, but I put up my hand. This has happened before so many times. He wakes up screaming and covered in his own blood, more than could fit in his little body. How am I supposed to believe this? I don't expect you to believe anything. I asked you here because I don't want you to be a problem for us. We need to move and change our identities again before the doctors send in their report. How often does it happen? Every few months. Sometimes every day of the week. It varies. The longest lapse was two years, four through six. When it happens, I clean him up. If we're caught, we leave. Fast. There are people who want to lock him up and study this. I can't let that happen. I looked down at my boy. Besides, it's just an accident during the night. Nothing to be ashamed of, right, buddy? Right, daddy? I smiled. Wallace clicked his tongue. This is insane. Maybe so, but it's true. I pressed my palms to my boy's ears. I've been dealing with his condition since he was born. The blood used to terrify me, but it's not what scares me anymore. While waking him from the screaming, he's begun to speak. Wallace scratched his ear. He lowered his tone and said, What does he say? I press a little harder on my boy's ears. The blood debt will be paid. The blood debt will be paid. I took my hands away and nudged my boy playfully in the side. You ready to go home so we can pack? Ready! That's my boy. As the taxi pulled off, I thought about the 9mm backup plan locked in the safe at home. So far, I hadn't needed to take a life to protect my boy. 
I turned and nodded at Officer Wallace standing in the middle of the road, hoping that he'd stay away. He faded into the morning fog until there was nothing left except a clean, white sheet of mist. I hope you enjoyed Ruined Sheets by Christopher Mallory, performed by Joe Walls. If you enjoyed what you heard tonight, we'd like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012, and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Finally... Thanks again to today's sponsor, Care Of, for their support of this show. Don't forget, as a listener, you can get 30% off your first Care Of order. Just go to TakeCareOf.com and enter CTDN30. That's TakeCareOf, all one word, dot com, with the promo code CTDN30 to get 30% off your first order, so you can take the first step toward being your very best today. I'm your host, Steve Taylor. And it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs 
or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie dot com. That's A N G I dot com.